What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For years, Turkey's president defied good sense, insisting that lowering interest rates would tame inflation. After his re-election last month, he appointed people who clearly know better. We ask what's changed and whether they will be permitted to fix the mess. And there's been a spike in the number of whales washing up on America's east coast. Our correspondent joins a whale-watching tour just off New York to find out what's going on. First up, though. At the end of the Cold War, America's President George H.W. Bush promoted the idea that peacetime would bring prosperity. I mean, mean to speak this evening of the changes that can take place in our country now that we can stop making the sacrifices we had to make when we had an avowed enemy that was a superpower. And now we can look homeward even more. Without the need for nuclear stockpiling, defense dollars could be replaced by social spending. Throw in lower taxes, and economic success would surely follow. But the IMF says this so-called peace dividend is no longer paying out. Uh, Russia invading Ukraine is not only a tragedy for the Ukrainian people. It is a tragedy for the global community because it sends a message that defense expenditures have to go up, the peace dividend is, is gone. War, in short, is expensive, as Russia knows all too well. Yesterday, to counteract sanctions and surging defense spending, the Kremlin unveiled a windfall tax designed to raise an estimated $3.5 billion from the country's oligarchs. Of course, it's not just Russian coffers being depleted. Arsenals are being speedily built up in many countries, and it's starting to have an impact on the world economy. The flip side of the peace dividend, then, is a global war tax. Defense spending around the world is increasing pretty quickly. Callum Williams is our senior economics writer. Last year, it crossed the $2 trillion mark for the first time, an increase of roughly 4% in real terms. There is good reason to believe that those increases are going to be sustained over many years. Lots of countries are pledging to spend more on defence. So our estimate suggests that if those kind of commitments do come to pass, the spending will rise by about $200 billion a year. But if you have somewhat more speculative assumptions, it could be as much as $700 billion a year. And how is all that money actually getting spent? 
in a number of ways. America, for instance, which is the largest defense spender by quite some distance, is devoting kind of a bigger share of its spending on research and development. So basically trying to develop weapons like hypersonic missiles, powerful lasers, all that kind of thing. To support the effort in Ukraine, it's also buying as many munitions as its factories can produce. China is spending a lot more on defense, so its expenditures grew by 4% in real terms last year. Its navy is now bigger than America's. And then there's also a lot of spending on nuclear arsenals too. There's some countries that are really ramping up spending. So Poland is one example, and Japan plans to increase its defense outlays by two-thirds to double, depending on how you measure it. And so what are the kind of knock-on effects for big jumps in spending in defense? Well, that is the big question now. There's a number of things that people are worried about. One is that costs are going to spiral because you're going to get this kind of wall of demand running up against fixed supply. So you could, in effect, get defense inflation. Prices can be hard to control in the defense industry because a lot of these companies are operating on the very kind of leading edge of technological development. And also, a lot of these companies are fairly monopolistic. So in some circumstances, they can raise their prices fairly easily. There's also concerns about a sort of rise in dirty dealing, The defense industry, as listeners will know, is not exactly known for being the cleanest of the clean. So if there's a lot more money swilling around, that could be a problem. But there are also kind of more macroeconomic concerns that you can summarize as the peace dividend of the post-Cold War world turning into a war tax. Essentially, what people are worried about is that extra defense spending is going to weigh down the global economy by either stoking inflation or slowing growth or both. Well, let's take each of those in turn. What's your view on the degree to which all that defense spending has an effect on inflation? Our view is that defense inflation is actually not that big of a risk. There are examples in the past where defense inflation has been very significant. So during Vietnam, for example, there was a big you know, rush to buy lots of weapons and defense inflation did actually for a short period go pretty bananas. We don't think that's likely. One reason is that even if countries follow through their commitments, global defense spending probably won't grow above the low single digits of global GDP. And what that basically means is that the impact of extra defense spending on overall global aggregate demand is going to be pretty small. Then that sort of leads to the question of why is that the case? Basically, defense is a lot more efficient than it used to be, definitely compared with World War II, World War I, but even compared with defense industries in the 80s and 90s. Modern armies just require far fewer people than before. They have even better machines. And it's quite likely, actually, that defense is going to continue to get better because it's embracing ever newer and ever more sophisticated technology. And so what that essentially means is that defense inflation has been pretty low for a long time. And if defense spending remains low, that means that its kind of impact on overall inflation is going to be pretty minimal. And concerning the depressing growth question that you raised before? So this is a big topic of debate among historians. Some people say, isn't it great that post-war West Germany and post-war Japan had forced limits on defense spending? Because that means that, you know, it freed up loads of money for extra things. And both those countries went through an incredible boom in the post-war period. But then other people say, well, yes, but look at South Korea, look at Israel. Both of those countries have pretty vibrant, big defense sectors, but also have pretty big and vibrant economies. Our own analysis suggests that there's not really any relation statistically between kind of how big your defense sector is and how good your economy is. So I don't think there's any particular reason to expect that a boost to defense spending is going to be a big problem. You know, on the one hand, yeah, it uses up resources. On the other hand, it might mean that people are innovating more. So it could probably balance out. 
Okay, so you've calmed my nerves about inflation and about growth, but still these are eye-watering numbers. That money has to come from somewhere. Yes. Governments, of course, have plenty of competing demands for their cash. Across the rich world, populations are ageing very rapidly. We also have to fight climate change. Governments are constantly being asked to spend more money. So there's a concern, which we agree with, that higher spending is going to mean higher taxes. I think there's kind of two options here. One is that countries don't follow through with their commitments. And there are some very strong suggestions that Canada is actually not planning on increasing its expenditure, partly because of these fiscal pressures. But the other thing is, going back to one of my earlier points, which is that You don't need to spend that much more on defence to make quite a big impact because defence is so efficient these days. So the calculations that we show is that doubling defence spending across the rich world basically means cutting other public spending by about 5%. Now, that's not going to be really easy, but it equally wouldn't be that difficult. We've talked about the what, but then there's also the when. How long do you think this spending spree will be going on? I think it could be going on for some time. I mean, ultimately, what matters is what happens in the US. You have some people on the right and the left who want to cut spending both for Ukraine and even for the Pentagon. But the mainstream is still kind of fairly in favor of bulking up military budgets in order to counter both Russia and China at the same time. And I think there's a sense that other countries are going to be following the American lead. NATO has been fairly strong over the past year or so. And also there's this idea of ratcheting. You know, once one country boosts, there's an incentive for other countries to boost, just as during the 90s when one country cut, there was an incentive for other countries to cut. So I think there's good reason to believe that we're moving into a new era of armament. Callum, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, freshly re-elected as Turkey's president, once called interest rates the mother of all evil. He's insisted for years that lowering borrowing costs would curb inflation. It doesn't. Inflation hit a peak of 86% last year, and the country's currency, the lira, has tanked. But something's different as Mr. Erdogan's most recent term begins. He's just appointed two people seen as economic realists. Türkiye'nin The new finance minister, Mehmet Şimşek, said the country had no choice but to return to a rational basis of economic policymaking. Mr. Erdogan also tapped Hafize Gaya Erkan to lead the country's central bank. Given her pedigree on Wall Street and Mr. Şimşek's sensible outlook, investors are at last cautiously hopeful. These new appointments could represent sort of a new page in Turkish monetary policy. The verdict is still out. Piotr Zalewski is our Turkey correspondent. They could be a signal to foreign investors that Turkey is a place worth returning to. But for all of that to be true, Mr. Shimshek and Ms. Erkan will need to work independently of 
Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the newly re-elected president. And before we get to talking about those two new appointments, remind us of Mr. Erdogan's economic uh, failure of orthodoxy, let's say. Erdogan has been the persuasion that the way to bring down inflation is to bring down interest rates. That obviously runs counter to mainstream economic theory and practice. And Erdogan was recently re-elected, not because of his recent economic record, but despite it. He had, over the past few years, eroded the independence of the central bank, so much so that the central bank had become effectively an arm of his government. And on his watch, and largely due to his policy of cutting interest rates, inflation hit a high of 86% last year, before easing to 40% in May. We've been talking on the show for literally years about the economic policy that Mr. Erdogan wanted pursued. He would lean on the central bank. Why the change of heart after all of this time, after watching its effects for so long and seeing the detrimental effects? What changed? The consensus in Turkey and abroad was that this set of economic policies was basically unsustainable. And that, first of all, you could not hope to bring down the inflation rate by bringing down interest rates. And second of all, that you could not prop up the currency, which had come under pressure because of inflation, simply by selling off central bank foreign reserves. And it seems that Mr. Shimshek and maybe other advisors managed to convince President Erdogan that, in fact, his economic model had hit a wall or was about to. Okay, so let's get into these two appointments then. Tell us about Ms. Erkan and what she brings to the job. It seems that Ms. Erkan was or is in a way part of the package and that Mr. Shimshek agreed to take up um, his post as finance and treasury minister only when Erdogan agreed that he would give the central bank a certain amount of leeway and that he would appoint a new central bank governor and that Shimshek and the new central bank governor would be largely free to carry out a return to orthodox economic policy. Ms. Erkan is uh, now Turkey's first ever female central bank governor. Um, she has an impressive uh, resume. She was an executive at both Goldman Sachs and First Republic. Uh, she was at First Republic before it collapsed earlier this year. Uh, she was educated in the U.S. and is familiar, very familiar with Western investors, Western financial institutions and markets and investors have seen her appointment and Shimshek's appointment as a very positive signal. But they also expect these appointments to be backed up by real policy changes. And Mr. Shimshek, perhaps a more familiar name to lots of Turks. Tell me about him and, and his appointment to the finance ministry. Shimshek is familiar not only to Turks, but also to Western investors. Um, he and Erdogan had worked together for about a decade. Shimshek has been in the saddle before. He uh, was a finance and treasury minister in the late 2000s, before being tapped as deputy prime minister. He oversaw uh, record growth in Turkey. But toward the end of his tenure, uh, he had effectively become sidelined um, and he had lost Erdogan's ear and his confidence. 
it seems that he had been sidelined by none other than Erdogan's son-in-law, Berat Albayrak, who then became Treasury and Finance Minister in 2018. And that appointment in 2018 was quite key in that allowed Erdogan to do as he pleased with regard to the economy and monetary policy. And assuming Mr. Erdogan allows these two new appointees to work with a free hand, and and that might be a large assumption, what is it they need to do? What they need to do, obviously, to show that their appointments are more than symbolic, is to increase rates and to impose an interest rate increase that is persuasive, at least to uh, the eyes of outside investors. Uh, They have to restore the central bank's credibility. They have to show that the central bank has regained some independence, or at least that it has a green light from Erdogan to pursue orthodox economic policy. Do you think it'll work? Do you think it will succeed? Do you think it will stick? We're going to get a much better sense of how much leeway these two have been given later this month when the Central Bank's Monetary Policy Committee convenes to set interest rates. The markets are expecting a significant rate hike, and anything less will be a disappointment. As far as sustainability is concerned, how the local elections, uh, Turkey's local elections, which are set for March 2024, might influence policymaking and might influence Erdogan. Now, for the time being, Shimshek and Erkan seem to have a free hand or seem to have been given some leeway by Erdogan to administer the bitter medicine that Turkey's economy needs to recover and that the lira needs to stabilize. But as elections near, Erdogan will probably want to show that the economy is growing, that it is growing robustly. And if the economic pain is severe, uh, then he may decide that this pain is, at least politically speaking, not worth bearing and um, that this orthodox uh, economic policy is, for him at least, and his uh, Justice and Development Party, a liability. And he may, yet again, reverse course, and he may decide to sack Shimshek and Erkan and revert to an unorthodox policy, order yet more rate cuts to pump more growth out of the economy. He's done this before, and he may do it again. Piotr, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. This past weekend, Roger Payne died. He was a whale scientist whose underwater recordings revealed the complex repertoire of haunting sounds that humpback whales make. His first album, Songs of the Humpback Whale, was a surprise international hit. And in time, the creatures came to be understood as intelligent, communicative, even emotional. That helped to spawn the Save the Whales movement and a moratorium on whale hunting. Many say Roger Payne is the reason that humpback numbers have recovered. The hunting may mostly have stopped, but human activity is still threatening whales in a big way, as our New York reporter Rosemary Ward saw firsthand. It's a really pretty marina, lots of lovely boats. 
It doesn't look like New York at all. You would never think you were in Brooklyn. I didn't expect to be able to see Wales just a few miles from where I live. It turns out I can. Hello. Hi. I went to Sheep's Head Bay in Brooklyn and got on a boat called American Princess owned by Tom Palandino. That's what we like. We're going to be looking for any large splashes that could indicate that a whale is surface active. And within sight of the skyscrapers of New York City and Coney Island's amusements, we saw our first whale. Oh, cool. Definitely humpback. Humpback. So for more than a century, it was really rare to see a whale close to New York City. The water was so polluted that it was mandatory for a police officer to go to hospital for two days if he fell into the river or into the harbour. But like so many visitors, the whales are being lured back to the city because the city is safer and because of the cuisine. You see that splash? In yeah, a, yeah, yeah. That is the whale side fin slapping the water. Oh, whoa. The whales are lured in by this kind of fish that have increased off the shores of New York, New Jersey and Long Island, probably because of warming waters. They're called menhaden. It looks like we're going to go spend some time with that whale. My guide for the day was Mitchell Steinhardt, a naturalist and a photographer. How long have you been doing this? Six years. And have you seen more and more whales each year? Oh yeah, I've seen the catalog go from 55, 56 to now we're at 304. Wow. Oh, my God. Oh, look, there's two. Seeing whales in their historic feeding grounds is a great story. It means New York's water is cleaner than it has been in decades. But seeing all the whales in larger numbers does not mean whale numbers have increased. Before the 1985 moratorium on commercial whaling, humpback whale populations had fallen as much as 95%. And it's great to see that they're coming back. But the northern right whales are still in dire straits. They have a population of just around 350. According to one study, over 80% of them have been entangled in fishing gear at some point, and they bear the scars. Have you ever seen a, a right whale? Yes, once. Back in 2020, 2020, we had a right whale. Right in this area, actually. Really? And that whale was unfortunately showing signs of entanglement. Oh, gosh. So we did make that call. Coast Guard and NOAA yeah. were both, both came out. I don't know if they were able to find it, though. It was very exciting to see the whales breaching. Everyone rushed to the edge of the boat. Kids were squealing. I was squealing. But as we came close to one of those fin slapping humpbacks, Mitchell spotted a problem. So there's a kind of a redded pink patch on the whale's back. It looks like it may have been hit by a, a boat in like the last 24 hours or so. Oh. And this is a whale that we believe we saw yesterday. So it did not have that marking on it. And it does look really fresh. Just another reason His back was just pink, where it was all kind of like this lovely black, gray, and white. It was just raw pink. It really got hit hard. If the whale was entangled, then we could call a response team from the Center for Coastal Studies who may be able to... Sadly, that wasn't a once-off. A huge number of whales are washing up dead all along America's east coast. Postmortems reveal that some die of natural causes, others from ingesting debris, or were tangled in fishing line. But in 40% of the postmortems, there was evidence of blunt force trauma or propeller wounds. So the whales are being hit by ships. 
We're going southwest right now. I can see Manhattan and the World Trade Center and past that, the Empire State Building. Behind me, I see what looks like a container ship going out to sea. This is the Wales Highway, long before it was the Boats Highway. These playful creatures are in the path of enormous container ships and cruise liners, and being rammed by these ships can cause injury and death. It's like a child plane in traffic when a whale is in this channel. I mean, New York Harbor has always been busy, but what's different now is the size of these container ships. They're enormous, and the cruise ships are like enormous skyscrapers floating on the water. And when these boats hit the whale, they're not even aware. It's like us hitting a fly when we're driving. Oh! This increase in mortality has been a worrying pattern since 2016. The following year, NOAA, the federal agency in charge of fisheries and the seas, declared an unusual mortality event. And it's only become worse since then. Since the start of December, more than 30 whales, including the endangered right whale, have washed up along the shore of the East Coast. Prior to 2007, they'd washed up maybe once every two years. Blow behind us, five o'clock. Locally, this sort of boat tour helps. Many times we do find whales and dolphins in the shipping channel in and out of the city. When we do, the captain will let the harbor pilot know, and the inbound and outbound cargo ships know that there are whales and dolphins in that area, and to please reduce speed. Ships then coming into the harbor and the greater New York Bight can keep an eye out and slow down. We're up to seven whales today. Oh, okay, whoa. Slower boat speeds is a must, and NOAA, the federal agency, may lower speed limits. But speed is hard to monitor, never mind enforce on the high seas. So for now, the whales are still in danger, and the seas around New York are deadly. And over the past few years, we're just getting more and more multiple whale days. Wow. I mean, it's great to see. I just worry about them getting hit. Yeah. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in with the deal we've got going on at the moment a free 30-day digital subscription. Just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer or click the link that's in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where... Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.